going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode 101 of the Core Consult RX podcast. Cole is with me as always, and we are talking about peptic ulcer disease today. Yes, we are. Cole, how's it been going, man? It's good. It's good. Like- Just quarantining and, you know, not really because I still go to work, but... <laughs> gonna say uh yeah uh, the whole uh jen sent me a video the other day of using one of those like snapchat filters or whatever mm-hmm. and she was going i don't want to be essential <laughs> <laughs> this whole song she made up it was pretty funny but uh yeah it's been a crazy couple months definitely didn't yeah. think uh when you know end of last year i wasn't thinking we'd be in the middle of a pandemic nope a few months from that didn't think uh We'd be essential employees either. Yeah, it's true. My mom said I'd never amount to anything. And look at me now. Look at you now. <laughs> Completely essential. <laughs> I feel like your mom didn't say that. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Oh, man. So, is work been crazy? Um, the store, the grocery store has been crazy. Everybody's cooking, you know. Yeah. Well, actually, me and my wife, we tried to go just, we figured most places would be open for takeout. Called like eight places and like all, anything but fast food is totally closed. Right. So I guess everybody's like, oh my goodness, I've got to learn to cook now. So the store is still crazy. The pharmacy is relatively normal though, other than the whole sanitizing everything, wearing masks and all that fun stuff. Yeah. We, um, we've been Uber Eatsing and Postmates yeah. and all that stuff a lot. Because yeah, I feel like they know what all the spots are open. They must. Because and we just cold call. So that's a good idea. Yeah. That's what I need to do. Uber Eats is where it's at. Um, and then they have the option where if like, hey, would you like to greet the person and get the food from them like a polite human being? Or would you like to tell them, no, leave it on my step and don't <laughs> speak to me? <laughs> I'm going to choose option B. So I feel like it's kind of, I, I get a real, real uh, dilemma there because mm-hmm. I feel a little awkward just being like, you just, you just leave it on the front porch, <laughs> nasty person. <laughs> then you don't have to give them a tip unless you can just tip on the, you have to do a tip on the yeah, app. Tip on the app. You don't there use you Uber Eats ever? No, I've never done it. Oh my gosh. No, because I'm like, do you have to, you have to pay extra for it, right? Not much. Okay. Well, I mean, there's there's some hidden fees, but the fact that they <laughs> <laughs> they bring that they bring it to your house just so overrides. No, whenever we see like even before all this, when there was a delivery option, and we're like, wait a minute, we could pay six dollars or drive ten minutes. We all, we just drive. I don't even think about it. I can't get the six dollars <laughs> out of my pocket fast enough. <laughs> I need to give yeah. you my code so you can try it because I think it gives you like a free. Do you get a referral like bonus? I think it gives us both like free $10 nice. in food or something yeah, like that. Yeah, do it. And then because she's been wanting to actually, oh man, do it tonight because we were like, she wanted to go out to eat, but we couldn't find any places. And she was like, let's just cook. And I'm like, no. No, not I don't want to cook tonight. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay. Now you can get hot wings delivered right to your okay. house. Okay. Now we're talking. Yeah, I got you. Now we're talking. Okay. Were we still on the podcast? That's right. Oh, hot yeah. wings. The reason I brought that up is because peptic ulcer disease. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I brought that up. Um, so we're going to go through peptic ulcer disease today. We're going to talk about, which we've already covered in a previous podcast, mm-hmm. but some stuff has changed. So we're going to cover H. pylori a little bit again today. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about some NSAID induced ulcers, but we're kind of going to walk through this because peptic ulcer disease, I think sometimes we automatically just jump to H. pylori, but it's more of a broader umbrella than that. Yeah. So we're going to kind of walk through that. I'm um, talking through some background information and go through some of the treatment options and all that fun stuff. Yeah. But I think Cole has some history. I do. So speaking of H. pylori, because it wasn't always associated with peptic ulcer disease. Actually, it's a relatively recent thing. And I didn't bring this up when we did our H. pylori episode, which I think is just completely negligent. Mm. Um, So the the helicobacter pylori was first identified in 1982. Uh, This is a shout out to our Australia listeners, which we do have some, uh, by two Australian scientists 
Robin Warren and Barry Marshall, um, and they identified it as being a causative factor uh, for ulcers. In their original paper, they contended that most gastric ulcers and gastritis were probably caused by colonizations with H. pylori, not by stress or spicy food like hot wings, uh, which was, had previously been assumed. Their hypothesis was poorly received. Uh, people did not believe them. So, in an act of self-experimentation, Barry Marshall drank a Petri dish containing a culture of organisms. I mean, this made me think of something Mike might do if he was in this situation. He drank a culture of organisms extracted from a person with an ulcer, and five days later developed gastritis. His symptoms disappeared after a couple weeks, but then he took antibiotics to kill the remaining bacteria at the urging of his wife, since bad breath is a result, there's a symptom of, you know, the colonization. Um, so they published this experiment in 84 in the American Medical Journal. It's one of the most famous uh, articles that was put in that journal. So later, a solid 13 years later, the CDC, other government, uh, government agencies, they launched a national education campaign in America to inform healthcare providers about the link between H. pylori and ulcers um, to reinforce that it's a curable infection and that can help with the ulcers, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of when it first, you know, became well known. And then in 2005, uh, Marshall and Warren were given a Nobel Prize for their discovery. Jeez. Yeah. It's all pretty recent. So what year was that again? 2005 was the Nobel Prize, but oh, 80, 82 was when they first identified. When the, he drank the Petri dish. Yeah, he drank it a little, a little while after that. Huh. So we talked about poop shakes, Petri dish shakes. So, yeah, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm a little concerned you said I would do that because I <laughs> just play. Well, I, I, what I could I see is... I have to is, prove a point. Yeah, exactly. So you, you would have discovered it and you know this is true, but then people wouldn't believe you and you're like, well, I'll show you. Well, there you go. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, it, it's a compliment. No, I, I take it as one. That's and cool. then you would end up winning a Nobel Prize. So I think... I, that's what we need in our lives is a Nobel Prize. Yeah. I hear sure. you get like a million dollars or something. Do you really? That's what they say. I thought you just got a trophy. That's way better. I think you do. Take a trophy and a million dollars. If you don't get a million, then I'm going to stop my research. Yeah, the thing is, we would be able to fund a lot of our projects if we had a million dollars to go off. Yeah, of. we would definitely have that uh, Sling Studio in here with that. Yeah, for sure. That's pretty crazy that he just drank that. That apparently, I mean, that's he, the so lore. He had, he had cultured H. pylori, I guess. At that, he point. got it from a guy or a patient who had ulcers. He got like a, basically kind of like a. You know, a, a, a microbiome shake from him, huh. and uh, yeah, apparently Crazy. doused it. So this is lore. I guess it's I can't confirm it for sure, but it wasn't that long ago. So I feel like they can't make that up, right? Just got no, no way. <laughs> There's got to be a way to confirm that story, though. That's, that's interesting. Or he just that's told everybody crazy. he drank it and was like, "Oh, my stomach hurts." Yeah, and, no, that's also a pretty bold move too, though. Yeah. That's crazy. So, um, you know, peptic ulcer disease is that mucosal erosion of the stomach or, you know, GI tract somewhere. Um, the erosion is going to um, extend fairly deep through the mucosa um, and compared to like, you know, just regular gastritis, which can be just a little bit of irritation and whatnot. This is actually forming a an opened like sore wound, if you will, um, through that mucosa and some of the deeper layers. Um, so it can occur um, in the stomach itself or more commonly uh, in the duodenum. And uh, you can see the ulcers using a, an endoscopy scope and uh, it can actually appear. And that's a, the definitive way of kind of diagnosing mm -hmm. them. Um, however, you can go off patient symptoms and things like that as well um, to kind of steer you in that direct right direction patient history and on medications are taking and all that right 
NSAIDs being exactly. primary culprit. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, other risk factors, uh, there can be a genetic basis, and especially if you're concerned for some type of uh, cancer, there's strong genetic components there. Um, severe physiologic stress can cause them. Other lifestyle factors, other drugs in general uh, can also increase your risk. Um, statistically speaking, the duodenal ulcers, which do seem to be the most common type, are uh, caused by H. pylori. Um, one of the things that kind of separates them from, uh, like, say, a gastric ulcer is um, the epigastric pain mm-hmm. that can occur. Um, the pain sometimes in the stomach that patients are experiencing actually can be relieved by eating uh, versus like a gastric ulcer, especially one that's caused by like an NSAID or something like that, is going to actually be made worse by eating. So duodenal ulcers, um, relieved, p- the pain can be relieved by eating, but then it's going to show up about one to three hours after the meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it can be potentially worse at night. Right. Um, so that's just one kind of, it's not always going to apply, but it's a one like kind of trick to distinguish between where the ulcer may be located. Right. Cause imaging is really the only way right. imaging or the, um, or going down there and looking, um, yeah, the gastric ulcer would be shortly after the meal as opposed to one to three hours that you would feel that, uh, alarm features that might warrant a, uh, referral to a specialist would be of course bleeding. If you find anemia on studies, it might warrant an earlier endoscopy, um, unexplained weight loss, progressive dysphagia or painful swallowing, recurrent vomiting, or if they have, you know, direct family history of, of cancer, you might, it might warrant a, a workup for that too. All right. Where do you want to go from here? So that's kind of, um, what we're looking at as far as we, you know, we don't always go too deep into presentation, but that's, that's what you might see. Um, belly pain is pretty nonspecific. So there would be, you know, other things on your differential that you'd want to consider, but we're mainly going to focus on that. Do you want to go into treatments for H. pylori first? Yeah, let's um, and let's. I guess let's talk through a little bit about H. pylori because it's a little bit different as far as com- compared to other bacteria. Um, you know, the the bacteria itself being able to survive at a very low pH, very acidic pH, is not a normal thing, and so the um, the bacteria. It's it's a gram negative. It's like a spiral shaped. Um, bacterium, and what it does is it um, uses this enzyme called bacterial urease, and that's going to hydrolyze the gastric luminal um, urea, and that's going to form ammonia as a byproduct, and that ammonium helps um, neutralize that gastric acid, and it kind of forms this like protective cloud, if you will, around the organism, and that is going to enable it to live live longer in that environment and actually penetrate through that gastric mucos, um, mucosal layer and get down into those uh, deeper tissues. So it's it's kind of a unique, I guess, unique um, type of bacteria in that it and because it can survive in such an environment. Um, as far as diagnosing, you know that. Right. specific part of it. Um, there's a few different ways they can go about doing it. Um, you know, they can do the scope and kind of look for the ulcer and things like that. Um, but part of that, they would do a rapid urease test um, as part of that endoscopic um, exam. They also can do urea breath test, which is a very common way of finding it. Um, and that's where basically you would attach a, a carbon isotope. I believe they use carbon-13 um, and allow the patient to, 
take that and then that's that becomes i guess um is able to be detected when it binds to that urea um as a byproduct so you know that because they're giving off that urea as a byproduct that it's something that uh the, the bacteria is obviously present there and um they can do like an antigen uh test like a stool antigen Deep test antigen, yeah um they can do uh blood tests as well there's a few different ways of kind of going about it but um i think probably blood the urea breath test maybe the blood test looking for like antibodies and whatnot is probably right. going to be another common way um but urea breath test i would think is the most common right so the goal um of medication therapy once you have confirmed a diagnosis of uh, PUD and um, also H. pylori is to, of course, eradicate the H. pylori, uh, reduce long-term issues from it, prevent complications with the peptic ulcers. And this can be done um, very well. I think they have with the current treatment regimens, they have like an 85 to 90% success rate with eradicating the infection and then healing of the ulcers. Um, there's also, uh, we'll talk about the medications, but anti-secretory therapy is important, um, avoiding um, exacerbating factors like smoking, NSAIDs, aspirin, um, that sort of thing. And then, um, yeah, just preventing a recurrence of that would, would be what your, your goal would be. One of the things that's interesting, too, to consider is H. pylori being present in the gut does not necessarily mean peptic ulcer. Right. So that's one thing that I think often gets confused is um, you think if a person has an H. pylori infection, well, you know, it's obviously going to lead to an ulcer. Not necessarily. There are people walking around with asymptomatic right. features. They're, they're not actually having even like gastric pain. Uh, and then there's probably more patients than you'd think actually have H. pylori. Um, but the big thing is, is like who actually gets tested? Right. Um, obviously, those who you're concerned about having an active ulcer. Um, but also, you know, there's certain... Um, the American College of Gastroenterologists put out like guidelines saying of who they recommend actually testing for H. pylori. And it's um, patients that either have, like I said, active peptic ulcer, patients that have a history of peptic ulcer disease, they have a um, previously documented cure of H. pylori. Um, and then patients that have like some kind of a uh, history of endoscopic resection um, due to early like gastric cancers. Um, patients that after they've had an endoscopy, um, you know, patients that are having symptoms, um, patients that are, even if you're not seeing something present, maybe doing like a gastric biopsy in some certain severe cases can be done to evaluate for an H. pylori infection. And then they even say to consider in patients who are about to undergo or initiating chronic treatment with NSAIDs because that chronic NSAID treatment can put you at risk. So they don't want you to, uh have any of the risk factors but they don't necessarily well they don't recommend just treating anybody who has an h pylori infection it's if you have other issues yeah so they basically the, say if a patient has is asymptomatic and they have um a even if they have a family history of you know gastric cancers and things like that things like that if they're not symptomatic you don't even have to necessarily test them right and so. uh but if, if they do end up getting tested, like worked up for something else, and it's like, oh, you you're you're colonized with H. pylori, but you're not having symptoms, it just the knowledge that it puts you at higher risk, and so that might be something to monitor going forward. Yeah. All right. Um, so I guess going into the, you want to go into the treatments of H. pylori itself. Sure, we'll do that first. So with H. pylori treatment, um, it depends on 
you know, which guideline and whatnot you're looking at. But typically speaking, nowadays we will go with the quadruple therapy, mm-hmm. um, which is the combination of bismuth substitrate, um, tetracycline, metronidazole, and then they add on a PPI, PPI of yeah. your choosing. Um, and so the three um, antibiotics that I mentioned, um, those are going to be uh, the combo product called Pylera. Mm-hmm. And then you add on the PPI to that. Um, the Pylera is broken up into like these little blast blister packs. So you can take it with um, each of your meals and then one dose at bedtime as well. And so each pack that you use for the meals has three tablets each. And then that contains all three of those drugs. And then you add on the PPI twice a day. So usually with um, breakfast and dinner and for 10 days. And in most cases, that will take care of a lot of the issues. Right. Um, now, before, they used to use triple therapy. That was like the gold standard for a long time. Yep. Um, which is a combination of chlorothromycin, amoxicillin, and um, and PPI. Um, usually either like, um, I think it was Panto or um, Lansoprazole was the one that was the prep pack. And... Um, the problem was is that, yes, it had good results for a while, but the problem was is H. pylori started to become very resistant to chlorothromycin. And so um, over time, then, you know, we started seeing more of this resistance, and then we started seeing less and less eradication with the triple therapy, and that made them start moving towards quad. Right. And an alternative with the Prev Pack um, is replacing amoxicillin with metronidazole if there's a penicillin allergy. Yeah. So the guidelines kind of recommend... Assessing two key questions. Is there a penicillin allergy? And do they have previous macrolide exposure for any reason? And that's the concern with the uh, chlorothromycin resistance. And they have some nice little diagrams that will guide therapy based on that. Yeah. And, and I mean, nowadays, you know, unless you can prove that the resistance rates for chlorothromycin are less than 15% in your local area, that we typically don't use them in it's going to be pretty, I mean, hard, I think, in, in my opinion, in a way, to, this, to justify using the triple therapy. Yeah, they still recommend quad therapy first line for pretty much any reason. And I guess it's just good to know. Yeah. Um, what about, uh, you want to go through some of the other ones, like the concomitant or? Yeah, so concomitant, um, what they describe that as is clorithromycin, amoxicillin, PPI, and then nitroamidazole. Mm-hmm which is, is that a, like a anti, um, I guess it's um, I it's antibacterial some like, sort. Um, yeah, I think it's similar to metronidazole. Yeah. But um, I, I'm not actually really familiar with that one because I yeah. don't even know if you can still get that. Uh, I want to check while you're looking. So that'd be concomitant. They also list sequential therapy, uh, I guess starting with a PPI plus amoxicillin, then PPI, chlorithromycin, nitroamidazole. Um, there's hybrid therapy, uh, there's also a levofloxacin triple therapy, uh, which is PPI, levofloxacin, amoxicillin. And, um, yeah, so their, their flow chart say they don't have a penicillin allergy, don't have exposure to macrolide. You're going to want to start with the bismuth quadruple therapy. Um, but then you could go with concomitant therapy, clorithromycin triple with amoxicillin, but other options would be that sequential therapy or the hybrid or the levofloxacin triple therapy. Um, they're still going to recommend the quad therapy if there has been macrolide expo- exposure, but then your second option wouldn't be anything with chlorothromycin. So you might go with something with levofloxacin uh, triple therapy next. If they have a penicillin allergy, then you're avoiding the ones with penicillin, 
potentially subbing metronidazole and i would obviously go down the whole track of identifying whether it's an actual penicillin penicillin allergy before avoiding your first line options um and if they do have a penicillin allergy do have macrolide exposure then of course the bismuth uh, bismuth quadruple therapy is going to be your first line in primarily uh, one of your only options so this is uh i just looked at that um term the nitraminazole um, we're gonna feel stupid. I, I figured we would right when I saw that word. <laughs> so this is uh, this is actually like the one of the as far as the antiprotozoal properties go, that's mm-hmm. like the class that metronidazole falls Good. under. So, nice. Yeah, made us look. I don't like know that. why they list it like that. Yeah, I don't, stupid. I don't like it. It's to make nah. podcasters look dumb. Now we look dumb because I guarantee there's somebody who's an infectious <laughs> disease listening going, "You idiots!" They literally list metronidazole, and then in the next line they list it as nitro. That's uh, stupid. Yeah, Whatever. I don't like it. Okay, it's their fault. Thanks. ACG guidelines. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so let's talk about the new, I, I shouldn't even say new, but the new co- available combo pack um, that we have for H. pylori treatment. Um, and that's the uh, Telesia. And that's going to be a double antibiotic and omiprazole thrown in. So we have rifibutinin, um, amoxicillin, and omiprazole. So Rifibutin, if you're not familiar with it, is a rifamycin anti-tuberculosis agent. Um, it's going to work on like the DNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Um, it's going to prevent basically like the chain initiation during replication and all that. So um, it's something that we typically, at least, you know, I don't, not something I typically think of when I'm thinking of H. pylori treatment, but um, it's been listed as kind of a salvage therapy for a while. Um it's something that is it has been on you know at least in the guidelines for some time to be used as salvage. Usually, I think they say you have to fail at least two. I think it was usually before using this, and I want to say the Canadian guidelines were even saying like three treatment failures before using this. Hmm. And the reason why this kind of has gotten some steam lately and and gained FDA approval as a combination product is because the resistance rates are going up for not only mm-hmm. just colectomycin, but also metronidazole as well. Yeah. Um, in some places, the, the resistance rates for H. pylori are, are hard because you're, you're not, everybody across the board is culturing and then testing the sensitivity right. and all that. And so they're usually just treating a bond right. confirmation. And so you'll have these studies that'll come out that'll talk about resistance, but it's from like one hospital unit that cultured and all that. And so, um, you know, there's some, some of those smaller, you know, single unit studies will show that, uh, like metronidazole rates in their particular hospital setting is, is actually higher resistance than chlorothromycin. And so, you know, it's one of those things that, okay, we, we ran into this problem with chlorothromycin. We had to change tactics. Now we're going to treating it with, with the quad. And maybe that's going to start losing some effectiveness as well. So, the rifbutinin is one of those that tends to have very low resistance yeah. rates as of now. Um, the studies that were done comparing this triple therapy, this telesia therapy, the first one they did um, was done against placebo. And then the second one that they did was against another one of the salvage therapies. So yes, they didn't see any kind of resistance rate show up in the studies. Um, however, it would have been really nice if they had compared it to patients taking quad primary or therapy. one of the actual cons- yeah. like therapies is you know primary therapy because the salvage therapy they compared it to I believe is like the high dose amoxicillin and it's like nobody really uses that for H. pylori so yeah it was better but 
Right. Um, it doesn't really tell us a whole lot. So, you know, the way I look at this is one of those situations where one, I mean, the once, once insurance companies get a hold of it, they're going to cover it. Um, it's going to be a little bit pricier than doing like, you know, the, the, the old school, like triple therapy. So it's not necessarily going to replace, but quad therapy is expensive too. So it's, it's one of those dilemmas that I would say I'd still think with, with everything until we get more data staying with quad. And then from there you can switch to, you know, either this new agent or what I would even say, they fail quad because if they fail quad and they're going to, you know, even if you haven't had any act like, um, exposure to a macrolide and you're, I still would worry about the clithromycin. So I would either say, try the new Telesia or I would do the levofloxacin triple therapy mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Cause then at least you're hitting it from a completely different angle. Right. Cause I don't think this, or I'm sure this was not out when the guideline came out. So they don't even address that. Um, at all. And yeah, in, in Talicia's uh, phase three trial, there was no resistance to rifabutin found at all. So not even just a little none. Yeah. And it was pretty well tolerated. Um, seems like they would want to take on the big guns and I feel like they'd make more money that way if they could prove that it was better unless they just didn't think it was going to be better. That's the problem. Yeah. I think that they were afraid because I mean the standards that they used as far as eradication, I want to say it was like 74% eradication. Yeah. So it wasn't like in anything the crazy. phase three, 84. Yeah. Okay. Versus fifty eight in the comparator arm, which I suppose that was not the placebo arm; that was the high dose amoxicillin arm. Well, and I think their standard that they had to beat was in the first the against placebo was seventy four, right? Something like that. So it's like you're not even setting the bar up yeah. that high. Yeah. So I don't know. It's one of those things that uh, it's, it's a little little sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what's interesting too is I had a student that just did her grand rounds on this. Um, you all have heard Alice on the podcast before, but um, she did her grand rounds on this. She did an awesome job. But the studies, she was literally having to go off of, like the study, this, the drug was approved in December, I think. Mm-hmm. She was had, the studies have never been published still. Oh, really? So she was literally having to like, call the company and get the poster that they did and all the slides. So it's like that got they did. the. It's got like you look and you can see that a study's being done, but it's not published in a journal. Right. So you can go on clinicaltrials.gov. You can get the results and all their data, but as far as like them talking about their limitations or like presenting how they came up with all this, that, and the other they don't really mention it hasn't been published yet and they keep saying it's coming but it's and so she picked her topic back in december and then she was we were like both of us were like oh it's going to be fine it'll be published by april and then it still hasn't so it's, it's little, approved and available right? it is approved i don't i think it's hit the market now i don't know if it's uh i looked at the drug manufacturer that we or the distributor that we get our stuff from um at the clinic we still can't order it so i don't know if that's just because we use a small distributor but um Red yeah, I mean, Hill Biopharma is the company. The company. Mm-hmm. So kind of interesting. I just thought that was weird that after being approved and all that, they still didn't have their stuff published. Yeah. Maybe they're just trying, they're waiting on uh, a good journal and then none of them just want it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's gotta be exactly what's going on. <laughs> so yeah, stick with quad first line. And then from there, I would go to one of the other agents. Um, you could consider this is a second line, a third option in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, also keeping uh, or considering like levofloxacin and triple therapy as well, where you do levofloxacin, amoxicillin and PPI. So I see very frequently where people are getting like the PPI H2, um, sucralfate combo, not being treated for H pylori, but I guess it's, you know, they just have an ulcer. So they're just getting that combo to help heal the ulcer. So is, is that an instance where 
Um, they just tested negative for H. pylori, but still have an ulcer, so they're treating it, or they just suspect, and so they're just going with that and hoping that it, it heals. Because I don't know, it seems like they're they're always talking a lot about H. pylori and not too much about when they don't have H. pylori, but they still have an ulcer. I guess it kind of just depends. I mean, if they can f- come up with a reason why the person have, usually I would think it's NSAID use. If it's yeah. like the um, sucralfate yeah. and all those, um, you know, even then, like the guidelines still recommend, even if it's in the case of a NSAID-induced gastric ulcer, they still recommend using like a PPI twice a day for eight weeks mm-hmm. to heal it as opposed to all those other options. Right. But I know there's some of the old school docs and stuff that'll still use sucralfate four times a day yeah. around the clock. And yeah, we, we dispense that all the time. Yeah. So. so I guess, you know, in that case, but I, I would think in that case you've ruled out H. Pyl- H. pylori or you have a history of like the person's been taking over-the-counter ibuprofen right. crazy doses on an empty stomach or something. I don't right. Know, you know. So you're pretty positive, you're pretty confident that it's that or aspirin or something yeah. like that. Okay. I mean, for me, I would still run, I would still want to run an H. pylori test if, right. if they've had the symptoms. Even non-invasive. Just to find out, yeah. Not super expensive. Um, speaking of H2 RAs, so Zantac was pulled off the market a couple weeks ago. Was it officially pulled? Officially I saw pulled. they were talking about it. Yeah, totally so gone. gone. So Prescription um, as well? Prescription as well, everything. So Zantac doesn't exist anymore? Not that I'm aware of crazy so it's gone so a lot of people are getting switched to pepsid because that's the obvious obvious um second option but then of course it's on significant back order so i don't know you might see some people popping around with tagamet uh i actually already have seen some people popping around with tagamet really but the main issue is um like peds especially in the hospital they use you know ranitidine constantly oral Mm -hmm. ranitidine um liquid constantly so they're having to swap. So their options, you're even outpatient. The options are like um, famotidine suspensions, Prilosec, obviously PPI, but Prilosec suspensions and that sort of thing is what they're having to switch to because they just used, you know, ranitidine oral suspension constantly. Yeah, that's that's going to be, especially with simitidine being a, uh, having so many drug-drug interactions yeah, and all that, there's, it's not a great option. No. Um, it can cause some issues in the elderly as well increased risk of like delirium which yeah. i guess all h2 blockers technically can but i don't know timidity you know it just makes me nervous it yeah. interacts with a lot of the sips yeah i try to hold out for pepsid if i was going to use one yeah me too yeah all right um so i guess we we mentioned um gastric um also doing for due to a NSAID. um one of the things that i think is important to consider is if that's the case, a person has an ulcer because of just chronic NSAID use, I think the first reaction we have, especially like, you know, your students in pharmacy school, like, oh, well, you need to stop the NSAID. Well, what about cases where the patient literally depends, their quality of life depends on an NSAID? Right. Um, patients have really bad osteoarthritis. You got a tough dilemma there um, because you have... You a, can tell them to stop, but they're not You can tell stop. them to stop, but if the person's, you know, hands and, you know, whatever else they may be affected by, their osteoarthritis starts hurting again because they're not taking it, it's going to be a hard sell. Yep. So one of the things that often is done is they just switch to a COX-2 selective drug, um, you know, being like celecoxib. And, you know, the, the issue I have with that is you know, whether or not that actually is completely safe for the GI tract compared to like naproxen or ibuprofen. Um, you guys have heard me ranting and raving about those, the difference between COX-2 and NSAIDs before on the podcast. when I talked about like the precision, precision trial and all that and osteoarthritis, um, osteo or rheumatoid arthritis as well. But, um, one of the issues from that study that they showed was that the 
if you look at their composite, the, as far as adverse effects, they say serious GI um, adverse effects were more significant in the naproxen compared to silicoxib. But then when you go back and you look and see what that is, it says, like through the supplemental data, it basically says that the only ones that were actually significantly different was naproxen caused more um, constipation and more potential iron deficiency due to, due to a, what they say a possible GI origin. And that's the only two that were different. So all the other ones were the same. So GI bleed, um, ulcers, all those things like that were the same. So don't look at a COX-2 inhibitor as being like just the get-out-of-free-jail card, like all of a sudden you can just switch to that and all their GI problems are over. It's still a risk, it's still something that we have to consider, you know, long-term, that what it could do. And so, yeah, I want to throw that out there because I'm not a huge fan of that. I know that sometimes we just jump to that. Right. So the other option they would try is adding a PPI on um, mm-hmm. with the NSAID. Right. So just having an anti-secretory agent on with it to, if they're going to have to take it, to decrease their risk of a bleed. Yeah. Um, the other one that's available on the market, too, that I'm also not a huge fan of is uh, Arthotech. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Misoprostol? Yeah, yeah, misoprostol and diclofenac combo. Mm-hmm. So the misoprostol component is a prostaglandin E1 analog. And what that does is that particular prostaglandin is what's responsible for um, kind of being the gastroprotective prostaglandins. And those NSAIDs, that, that's the one that's removed by NSAIDs specifically that leads to all the issues in the stomach. And so you're basically just giving a um, replacement of that prostaglandin E1 and all is good. Um, the problem is it's, one, it's not the most effective thing. And two, it's in combination with diclofenac, which is yeah. not a great NSAID. Not our greatest one. Yeah. Cardiac speaking, right? Car- yeah. Cardiovascular speaking puts you at more risk. Um, it's been shown. There was a meta-analysis that came out, I think 2018, I believe, that showed that that one compared to um, other NSAIDs. I, I want to say they were looking at naproxen ibuprofen maybe. Um, and then the diclofenac increased risk of, of MI compared to the other ones. Didn't naproxen kind of come out on top in that one? Yeah. yeah. Naproxen usually seems to be the one that comes out on top as far as cardiovascular yeah. issues go. But, yeah, so the main thing is what I would consider is, one, if you have a patient that is, you know, using an NSAID and they don't want to come off it, if it's like, for instance, maybe like just in the hands or something like that, they're having issues, maybe trying like a topical NSAID, seeing if that helps. If not, um, making sure that they are on some kind of a protective agent, like whether it's a PPI or um, something along those lines, and then constantly reassessing their need because you don't want to just say, okay, well, you can be on a PPI for the next three years either because that leads to a whole other host of potential right. problems. So it's going to be just monitor, like carefully monitoring and just doing the best you can with that situation. There's Did no you see that um, Voltaren Gel is going to go OTC? Is it officially? Mm-hmm. I heard they were it, talking it about hasn't it. hasn't yet, but it got, I think it, got, it looks like it got approval to go OTC. Hmm. Cool. So there'll be a lot of counseling to do with that as far as the dosing of two to four grams and how many joint sites to use it on and avoiding it use with other ibuprofen products or other over-the-counter products um, and the, the effects on cardio, cardiovascular health and um, kidney health. It seems to be kind of unclear. We presume it's safer, but, yeah. you know, because the systemic absorption is less, but so there'll be a lot to look into with that going OTC, I think. Yeah, for sure. What else? Anything else with this stuff? I've seen where people have used um, like sucralfate in place of a PPI for it to be the protective agent. I don't know that that's recommended. Um, still, the PPI is recommended. Plus, it's like four times a day, and the idea is that um, 
it effectively forms a viscous adhesive barrier on the GI lining, um, acts against pepsin, peptic acid, bile salts. Usually you would see that when the ulcer is actually healing, but I don't, I don't really think that you would want to use that in combination with an inset to protect though. I guess it makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. It makes sense from, um, I guess a physiology standpoint, but it'd be hard to keep up with something four times a day anyway. Yeah. So yeah. PPI is a lot easier. Yeah. Cool. What else? That's pretty much all I got. So we got the new therapy in there. We talked about, um, quadruple therapy. Nice little PUD update, I think. Cool. Yeah. All right, y'all. Well, we'll call it a day then. There. And um, please let us know if you have any questions. Our emails will be in the show notes. And um, if you know you guys like the show, definitely make sure you subscribe to it on whatever platform you listen to, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or any of those cool platforms. And um, thank you guys so much for the support. And let us know if we can cover any specific topics or anything like that for you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great one.